0: All right, 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter number 1, we'll pick up where we left off our last look together, 1 Timothy chapter number 1. Just to remind us, as far as our uh, chapter outline, what we have looked at and uh, where we are tonight, I personally believe there are easily four divisions to 1 Timothy chapter number 1, verses 1 and 2 is the opening remarks of the natural greeting to the book. And there was a, a bond that connected two brethren. That bond was formed because of the cross of Christ, verses 1 and 2. There was Paul the apostle, who we called Paul the aged, and there's Timothy the younger, verse 2. You remember Paul is Timothy's senior by 30 years. In Paul's first missionary journey, Timothy was saved. Though Paul had no naturally born children, he called Timothy his own son in the faith. On his second missionary journey, he pulled Timothy because of his growth in the Lord. He pulled Timothy into his world. and On his second missionary journey, every step he made, young Timothy was there with him. We move from there uh, to verses 3 through 11. The second division is there's an obvious work in which Timothy is to engage it's a needed work. If the church is going to remain biblical, it's needed. It was false doctrine that was being taught. And so now Timothy's to go in there. You remember one of the themes of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, the pastoral epistles, is sound doctrine, sound teaching. So if he's going to go in there and teach where there's been something false or is something currently false being taught. Then verses 3 and 4 lets us know there's going to be a storm that has to be weathered. Somebody's going to have to pay a price. Also, there's a flock that is to be fed, verses 5 through 10. The law and good deeds were being used to smother people and try to force people into doing what's right. But we learned in that section, remember, the law wasn't intended for a righteous man. The law is intended to constrain the lawbreaker. You don't have to tell a good citizen of this country to live right. You don't have to tell him to obey the laws of this county or this state nor this country. He just wants to do that. He'll make you a good neighbor and he'll make a good citizen of this land. And then, of course, there's a gospel to be preached. Verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of our blessed Lord. Remember, that word blessed means happy, and it literally means happy, happy. According to, the bless, according to the glorious gospel of our blessed God, he's only too happy to save. Now, that, as Brother Doug Jones would say, that tickles my innards tonight. Luke, to know that God's only too happy to save, even at 1.30 in the morning. Somebody ought to call recess, turn the mules out, and run a while. Some of you have ears to hear and know what I'm saying. I'm still giddy about it. In verses 12 to 17, which is where we all are, there's Paul's uh, personal witness. His pers- personal witness is given here. Now, I want to read verses 18 to 20. Then we're going to look at our section that we're, we're in. And we won't finish this section tonight. We've already looked at verse 12. We're going to look at verse 14 15 tonight, the Lord willing, about this regard- <laughs> regarding Paul's... <laughs> His personal witness. But in verses 18 to 20, he he writes to Timothy in verses 18 to 20. He's left him at Ephesus. He lets him know uh, that there's a warfare in which he is to engage. Verses 18 to 20. This charge. Remember that same word? The word command comes from in verse 5. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies that went before on thee that thou by them Midas war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, and, and which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus, I'm going to get that right, and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, verses 12 to 17, this personal witness. I've said this each night prior. This is our ninth look into the book of First Timothy He tells us about it here. He gives a witness to his salvation and his calling and placing into the ministry. In these verses, now we won't deal with the second and the third, but I've grouped these verses under these headings. In verses 12, 14, and 15, there's a testimony of gratitude for Christ's working in Paul's life. The fact that he's worked should produce gratitude always. In verse number 13, there's a testimony to Paul's wickedness before knowing Christ. He was the one you would not have thought, even after he was saved, that God would have put in the ministry. If you look at his resume, it's, uh, it's got a lot of marks on it. But God, God put him in the ministry. Verses 16 and 17, there's a testimony of God's witness through Paul's life. And we may just mention that toward um, the end of our look tonight. A testimony of thankfulness for Christ working in Paul's life. Verse 12, 14, 15. Here's where we were, our last look. Wednesday night before last. There's, in verse number 12 is where we were looking under this heading. Verse number 12, there's Paul's profound gratitude. He writes in verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. You remember we spoke of Paul's gratitude for his life, not just the calling, not just salvation, but his life. He can't do but what he does. He can't be but what he is. The Lord has so worked in his life and so overwhelmed him in his life, he knows nothing else that he can do. And we tried to use a personal illustration from Mayfield Creek Baptist Church in Mayfield, Kentucky, I believe it was in 93, uh, Brother Kerry Nelson and I drove up for their 4th of July jubilee. We went to hear Brother Mays Jackson, a missionary from South America, just to cut to the short of it. They'd been mistreated there. Uh, A number number of the residents of the small village where they lived and ministered um, were robbed and left for dead. They were stripped of their clothing He and his wife and two teenage daughters, they just knew the next thing was that they too, their lives would be taken. He told about it through tears, went to walk away. Brother Mike had him, Brother Mike Robbins, had him share his testimony, what he had experienced. He walked away, and then Brother Mike stepped from the seat, and he said, wait a minute, come back. He said, tell them where you're going in two weeks. And he said, we're going back to South America. He couldn't help but be and do what God's put in him. That's why Brother Wilson Sarah Pauli does what he does in Hyderabad, India. That's why these four missionaries that are always mentioned by Brother Chris Wilburn, that's why they do what they do. They can't do but what they do because that's what they're called to do. God's put it in them. That's why Ray Hall's got a full plate here in the States and yet he still oversees that work there in the Philippines, Rosemary's home of hope. That's why the Tranthams and the trivets and everybody else do what they do. Why, under God's heaven, would a man leave a church taking care of anything you could imagine monetarily? And I'm not talking about to lay aside the pressures he lived under in the pastorate when Brother Ken was down south pastoring in Chattanooga. Why in the world would you leave there and go to the most impoverished church area of the country. i tell you why. God was behind every bit of that. He orchestrated his life. It's Paul's gratitude for his life. We spoke of Paul's calling upon his life. He said, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. He said, number one, he hath enabled me. Number two, he counted me. Number three, he put me into the ministry. And only God does that, can do that. Here's where we got to our last look. Verse number 14 you look at it again, and we talked about Paul's profound gratitude in verse 12. In verse number 14, there's Paul's abundant grace, or excuse me, Christ's abundant grace. Verse number 14, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, when Christ saved him, uh, he, he writes about that. He, he writes about uh, this, this salvation. It's, it's brought into focus here. Paul's salvation was full and complete. He writes how that it was exceeding abundant. The grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. One writer has written about the word this comes from. This exceeding abundant means means something is super abundant, beyond normal measure, uh, more than can be explained or contained. It's exceeding abundant. He said, this, this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ was exceeding abundant with faith and love. This comes along with it, not just in small measure, but in abundance. Pouring in and spilling out. I'm convinced it's so of everybody's life that's been saved by the grace of God. But one writer writes about this word, a wordsmith. He has written, nowhere does this verb appear in secular Greek or in Scripture. He goes on to write, Paul seems to be coining a word to express what had never been expressed before. He's saying here, where sin abounded in my life, grace overflowed yet the more. You say, preach, you don't know where I've been, don't care. Don't know what I've done, don't care. You ever heard somebody say, well, if God could get me, if he could save me, why, well, he can save you. Well, you wasn't any problem for God to save. No matter the distance sin may have taken, Christ's grace goes farther. No matter the depth of the mark of sin, his grace goes deeper. And, of course, we think of, don't we, Romans 5.20, where Paul is written, Moreover, the law entered. We had to have it. Not only show us our sinfulness, but our exceeding sinfulness. The sinfulness of our sin. That the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And we thank God for that. We thank God for that. Paul's salvation, as he writes about it in this section, stands in contrast to this this works and this law. um, Keeping the law to maintain or to obtain salvation stands in contrast to what the church has had infiltrated look at verses 7 through 10 again let me remind you what these people that were were teaching false doctrine in the church who they were and what they were teaching verse number 7 through 10 they're teaching a works-based using the law to do so but they're teaching a works-based salvation verses 7 through 10 desiring to be teachers he said of them Designed to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. He said, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, the law law is not made for a righteous man. But they were preaching it to righteous men. You get the feel of it there. He says, it's made but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for mint stealers for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul talks about what they would have done is twisted your arm up behind your back or put you in a headlock while you were in the church service, so to speak, and try to make you do right. You don't have to make a man do right. You don't have to make someone do right if they have a heart for Christ and they're walking with Christ. You don't have to beat somebody up in a service to get them to do right. If they won't do right, they will. If they know Christ, they will. They may not do right for a span of time, but they'll get it right if they belong to him. I love, and we'll look at it next week, but I love a phrase that Paul uses twice. In verse number 13, what a resume prior to salvation. He uses a phrase in the middle of it. Watch verse 13. Who was before? Speaking of himself, he said, I was... He said, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious? Watch this. He said, but I obtained mercy. If he'd have stopped right there, that had been enough. Down in verse number 16, he said, "Howbeit for this cause? I obtained mercy, and then he'll give you the reason why. We should thank God for his mercy every day found in Christ. I gave you a verse from Romans 5. Um, A works-based, a law-based salvation that you try to earn or keep keep your head just trimmed enough, you never satisfy the religious leaders, the hierarchy. They'll always make you feel inferior. You'll never measure up. You'll never, ever, you'll never get there. But in Christ, there's rest for the child of God. There's rest. I don't have to accomplish anything. He's accomplished it all. That does not mean that I live a wicked, sinful life where there's gross sin, right? Remember we talked about when we were in verses 3 through 11. The law and the gospel, there's no contradiction there. What the law requires of us, so does the gospel. The Holy Spirit writes the law in the heart of the believer. We dealt with that in a Sunday service four or five Sundays back in dealing with our message. You don't have to tell a man to live right. David Brainerd, I don't know that Ken's going to be too far from it. David Brainerd is heralded as the greatest missionary to the Native American people in the history of this country. Um, There are others. Jonathan Edwards has been heralded as a great missionary. There are others that we'll never hear hear about. Do you know Brainerd wrote in his diaries, That once he saw a Native American saved, he never had to tell him how to live. Isn't that interesting? Brother Ken talks about those natives who have no money. When they take the offering, when they first started taking the offering, those children would chase the offering plate. They might have a penny or a nickel. They they wanted to be a part of it. So it is with those who were saved. But there's a rest that redemption brings to the believer. The war is over. The war is over. Listen to Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. Therefore, being justified by faith, not by works, not by your keeping of the law. Therefore, being justified by faith. We have, right now we have, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 2, he goes on and says, we still have some things yet by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, we've done what the Charismatics have done, by and large. I'm, talking, I'm speaking in general of the Baptist church. A lot of the Charismatics, what they've done is beat down a number of their people. If they're first saved, if they actually are seeking Christ, they'll tell them that you've got to be filled with the Holy Ghost. That's the way they say it. And the evidence of that is speaking in tongues. The Bible never one time says that. And then you've got some earnest seekers that what they do is they feel inferior because the elders or leaders of their movement are telling them, you don't know God. If you knew God, you'd be filled with the Holy Ghost, and you'd be speaking in tongues. That's sad, but the Baptist church does in like manner quite often and keep people handcuffed. When you were adopted, you were brought in full-born with full rights to Christ. You can pray. You don't have to scream and shout. As a matter of fact, prayer is not how loud you can be. I know some who pray and they're loud every time they get to pray and they loud. I'm thinking about one old gentleman who's now with the Lord, sat on this side um, in a church, and I got to, I've got to preach to him a number of times through the years. And uh, just... To, I mean, just a simple man. Worked in a little old factory where he lived. Lived in a home that was a sharecropper's home. It was a rental home. He and his wife lived in a little rental house. You heard the old saying, haven't you? You throw a cat through the wall. That's Brother Larry Childress for you. Son, he'd go to praying. And I'm telling you, it just seemed like the angels would stop. And I'm just telling you, he had God about him. He said, God about him. Well, if it would have been left up to ability and education, he wouldn't have qualified. But that's not what it depended upon. It depended upon his knowing Christ. And he knew Christ. I loved him. I loved him. He was the encouragement to my life. I won't relabor it, but you remember the law is our schoolmaster, Kohath. It's our schoolmaster. The law teaches us that we are violators of the holiness of God. We have broken his law. We have broken his law, and because of that, we are sinners. Because of that, we needed a mediator, we needed a savior. Jesus Christ is that savior. So the purpose of the law is not to save, it never could save. But the purpose of the law was, uh, was to inform us that we needed saving. The law cannot save. Baptism cannot save. The Jehovah's Witnesses, with their good works, their message cannot save. Mysticism with its dreams and fables cannot save. The Nazarene faith and their keeping of the Ten Commandments cannot save. The Seventh-day Adventists with their Saturday worship cannot save. Christ alone saves. There's a difference in law and grace. There's a difference in law and grace. The law says you must do and grace says it's been done. The law was given in stone. The law is written upon our hearts by the Holy Ghost once we are saved. The law, according to the Word of God, is the letter that killeth. Under grace, we find the Spirit that gives life. Under the law, we are kept afar off. You remember when God was giving the law on top of a smoke, fire-filled Sinai? Anyone who touched the base of the mountain... Was to be struck dead, we were kept at bay with the law, but under grace, we've been invited to draw nigh. The door is always open to the child of God. Under law, the law terrifies and strikes fear, but under grace, Christ sought us when we were yet a stranger. The law is always conditional, isn't it? If, it's conditional, if. But uh, no strings attached when you come into the family of Christ. Under the law, we were blessed by obedience. But under grace, we become obedient because we have been blessed. Now, we know Christ. We desire to be pleasing to it. The law says do and live. Under grace, we live and do. The law says do and says it loud. The cross of Calvary says done and says it loud. The law says, Thou shalt love, and under grace, the Bible says, for God so loved. The law curses, and grace removes the curse. The law condemns, and Christ justifies. Under the law, the offense abounds, but under grace, as we've already read from Romans 5.20, grace doth much more abound. Under the law, we're met with resistance, but under grace, whosoever will may come. And we could go on and on. There's Paul's profound gratitude, verse 12. Christ's abundant grace, verse number 14. Then there's Christ's sufficient gift. You know, notice with me, if you will, verse number 15. Christ's sufficient gift. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That word acceptation simply means what you think it does acceptance. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, acceptance of all. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This is one of five faithful sayings of Paul, all unique to the pastoral epistles. Three of them found in 1 Timothy 1 and 2 Timothy and one in the book of Titus. A faithful saying, a worthy statement. This is a faithful saying, a trustworthy statement. You can share this statement with anyone, anywhere, at any time. And it's faithful. It's true. It's trustworthy. You can share this with anybody. That being your mother, your father, your son, your daughter, your husband, your wife. And you won't share it with the wrong person. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. There is salvation and grace for all. At the acceptation of this truth. It's worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Salvation does not come through many modes. Nor many means. It comes through one. And one alone. And that one is Jesus Christ. Paul calls him Christ Jesus in his writings often. It comes through him and only him. Jesus in response to Thomas who asked or who stated, Lord, we know not whether thou goest, and how can we know the way? He said, he saith unto him, John fourteen six, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He said, Thomas, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Good intentions don't get you into the Father's presence. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. In Christ only. There's salvation and grace for all at the acceptation of this truth. There's condemnation and judgment at the rejection of this truth. We preachers, I suppose all of us, have preached what uh, has been preached through the years. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Christ being the difference between the two. We hear in our day that if you die without Christ, that God won't send you to hell, that you'll send yourself to hell. But now that's not Scripture. Greatest insult to the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, is the rejection of God the Son and his bloody sacrifice on Calvary. The God that destroyed the world, excepting eight people during the antediluvian age, they didn't believe that he was going to send judgment, and he sent judgment. The cities of the plains, Sodom and Gomorrah, did not believe that God would destroy them by fire and brimstone, but he did it anyhow. Mrs. Lot did not believe that she would be turned into a pillar of salt if she took a look into her past. She took, turned and looked back was turned into a pillar of salt. Of hell, we don't hear much about hell these days, but Isaiah thirty-three fourteen 14 calls it a devouring fire. The same verse calls it an everlasting burning. Matthew 13, 41 and 42 calls it a furnace of fire. I've never understood that. If you? Uh, you? You let a man... Um, you let a man, in his house catch fire, stand in the doorway of uh, front of his house, the volunteer fire department shows up, the choir from the church shows up, starts singing. Preacher says, Won't you come out of there? And him say, No, I think I'll just turn around, and go back in there, and burn. I never have understood that of you. According to Revelation 16, it's a place where the curse. Revelation 14, 11, it's a place where there's no rest. Matthew 25, 46. It is a place of everlasting punishment. Revelation 16, 10 a place where they gnaw their tongues. Jude 13, the 13th verse of Jude says it's a place of blackness, of darkness forever. Isaiah 33, 11 is a place where their breath will become as a living flame. Matthew 25, 41 tells us it wasn't created for man. Initially, it was created for the devil and all the falling angels. Revelation nineteen twenty, it's a place where people are cast alive. Revelation 14, 11, it's a place where the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. Revelation fourteen ten. it's a place where they drink the wine of the wrath of God. It is an eternal place of eternal death and referred to as the second death. And one day at the great white throne judgment, death and hell itself will be summoned and thrown and all its occupants cast into the lake of fire. Good news is Christ has suffered our hell for all those who believe. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5 says... Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. George Goodman, I've shared this with you at a couple of junctures through the years, but Goodman, I love to read after him, have for years. Goodman, George Goodman, his brother Montague Goodman's got one of the best books out there on the Holy Spirit, a simple approach to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. George Goodman had a devotional heart about him. He wrote of being in his office one day and a, a man had been visiting the church for some time, knocked on the door, and he invited him in, he sat down across from him, across from his desk. He said, how can I help you? He said, tell me what I can do to be saved. He said, well, what have you done? He said, well, I decided I was going to attend church, not just this church, but another church, and I don't miss a service. He said, well, that's more than I've done. He said, go on, tell me what you're doing to be saved. And he said, well, he he said, I'm reading X amount of chapters out of my Bible every day. He said, well, you're doing more than I'm doing. He said, go on, tell me more. He said, well, I've laid aside a certain amount of my income to give to the two churches and He said, Well, that's, that's more than I, I'm doing. He said, Well, I guess there's no hope. And he said, I didn't say that. He said, Your problem is you're not looking to Christ. The work's already been done, sir. And you can be saved by casting yourself on the mercy of the Son of God. And he was gloriously saved in front of Goodman's desk. Similar situation happened with Moody, D.L. Moody. The Chicago evangelist, who God used um, both in Great Britain and here in the States. They had had an evangelistic campaign. He had preached. I of Sankey. he had sang each evening. They had people visit the tent. That's what they used it for, was an evangelistic campaign to try to reach the lost in communities in established churches. The man who had left came back to find Moody and the workers. They had rolled up their shirt sleeves, was... Gathering up their tables, their platform, and taking everything apart, and tent. They were just, it was manual labor at this point, try to put it all away, gather it up, and store it, and put it all away and transport it then. The man asked Moody, he said, Moody, tell me what I can do to be saved. And he said, You're too late. He left and come back, troubled a second time. He said, You're too late. And a third time. And he said, He said the same. He said, Well, I guess there's no hope for me. He said, I didn't say that. He said, you're too late. The work has already been completed on Calvary. He said, if if you desire to be saved, you can be saved right here. The man was gloriously saved. There's a point of emphasis that Paul makes. He says, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul writes of Christ's purpose in his incarnation in verse 15. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ... Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It does not say that Christ Jesus came into existence. There are people sitting on Baptist church views that think that Jesus did not exist prior to his birth. He is the uncreated creator. You can find him often as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Speaking to Moses to the parents of Samson, Manoah, and his wife, others. You remember after his resurrection, Cleopas, and very likely it was his wife, Mary, with him on the Emmaus road. Jesus joined himself to them. And the Bible says, And he beginning at Moses, and all the prophets expounded unto them the things concerning himself. Uh, Many say today, many say today that You can't find Christ in the Old Testament, but he had no problem finding himself. He is in all of the Word of God, Old Testament and New alike. Christ's purpose in his incarnation, he came into the world, not into existence, he came into the world, robed himself in flesh to save sinners. To save sinners. We don't need to say any more about that. The golden rule of biblical interpretation is, when the Bible makes sense, seek no other sense. And that's as plain as a nose on some of y'all's face. It's very pronounced, isn't it? Say amen right there. Now notice this, and I'll stop with this. Look at verse number 15 again. Notice Paul's admission of guilt as a sinner. Again, the verse says, This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Here's his admission of guilt as a sinner. He said, Of whom I am chief. Notice what he did not say in that last phrase. He did not write, Of whom I was chief. He said, Of whom I am chief. He said, I'm first on the list. I'm the worst of the worst. That's what Paul Paul says, of whom I am chief. I was thinking these, some of these thoughts over. I believe this is the mark of a man who knows of his sinfulness and of Christ's sinlessness, what he's done for him. He said, of whom I am chief, it's a mark of maturity. The further you go with Christ, the more you realize who he is and who you are. The more you hate where you've been and what you've said and what you've done, right? The more you mature, the more you slide over and sit with John the Baptist when he comes to church. And his cry is, he must increase but I must decrease. Christ has done a work for me and in me. This is also a mark of a man who knows of his dependence upon God. God owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. John 3, 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. You remember we were in the book of Job. We made a statement every time we read from chapter number 1. I did this out in a few meetings out and about while preaching some from Job. John knew something we don't tend to seem to know. Remember what he said? I read the verse to you, John 3, 27. A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. You remember when Job received the message from the four different messengers in about 60 seconds or a little over time, His whole world was changed. And the Bible says in Job 1, Beginning of verse 20, then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshiped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away, and he has the right to do so. I added the last phrase. Job knew something that we don't seem to know. This also is a mark of humility. I'm convinced of it. I've had this conversation with, I don't know, with the preachers over the years. Uh, eventually, conversation gets around to something along the line that the progression of a man or woman's faith can be seen. You can mark it with humility. You can mark it with a mark of sanctification, but you can mark it with humility. You'll be able to mark it with that. We first met Saul of Tarsus in the Bible... He was a religious man doing things and heading places in the religious world. Saul means big. We now know him to be Paul the Apostle. Paul means little. Prior to conversion, he lived big. He was loud. He made a lot of trouble in his little world. But now that he's saved, he's learned how to live small in a big world. And there's a vast difference. A vast difference. Paul knows something about God's working in his life. His life now is marked with humility. God has chosen to use him. He's chosen to bless him. And he didn't have to do anything for him. I was reading in recent days about... um, when Richard Baxter was on his deathbed, he was a Puritan who was used of God. A friend wanted to encourage him, slipped up to his bedside, sat in a chair, talked to him a while. Told him how that he was a blessing, he was used of God to be a blessing. Through his preaching and his writing through the years, he was trying to encourage him. Baxter, right near death, said to his friend, this is his words, and I quote, I was but a pen in God's hand. And what praise is due a pen? <laughs> if you and I ever amount to anything in this life, it'll be because of the goodness of God. Maybe a few people God placed along the way to help us get to where he wanted us to be. Don't ever forget that. Paul's life is marked by humility. He considered himself the least of the apostles. 1 Corinthians fifteen nine. For I am the least of the apostles... That him not meet, in other words, I'm not worthy to even be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. Always broke his heart, that he had done what he had done. He considered himself not only to be the least of the apostles, but the least of the saints. Ephesians 3, verse number 8 unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles unsearchable riches of Christ. Terrence Barnhill and I just almost, Brother Johnny had camp meeting about 5.50. I sat in my desk and I called to see how Candy was doing, how he was faring. And he said, I can't explain what God's done for me. And I said, the world don't understand it. The world don't understand this. He's going to say goodbye to his wife until he makes the crossing himself somewhere down the road. I said, Brother, has it ever occurred to you that we are the only people living, God's people are the only people living on planet earth, that where we take our strength and courage and find peace and contentment is not looking within, but it's looking away and unto him. And the more you look unto him, the more peace you have, and the more grace you have, and the more strength you have, the more you look away from yourself and look unto him and rest In Him. Paul delivers good news to those of us with a bad past. How many of us got a bad past? You don't have to raise your hand, I'll raise mine. He's got good news for all of us, fellas. This is a faithful saying. He said, It is worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Let me add one thought to that. Glory to God. I'm glad He is. Two Sundays ago I lost my train of thought and uh, some of us had a laugh about it at the door by scratching my head. I still couldn't still couldn't remember. I remembered what I was talking about, two or three of you jarred my memory. I was talking about Brother Doug and his altoids, and I traveled with him, then he traveled with me, and we've been together in a lot of hotels. We've been together in Sunday school rooms where we spent the night for camp meetings. Um we were in Atlanta, Georgia, went to see the Braves play and attended a missionary that uh, Victory supported for years, attended the funeral south of Atlanta the following day, went to watch the Braves play, come back, and uh, I thought he'd fallen asleep setting up and he was crying, broken hearted preacher, I won't tell you what he was crying about, so humbly. But I know, I, I finally, about uh, about midnight Sunday night, I, I was trying to rehearse, I Usually when I lose my train of thought, it comes back to me somewhere before I get through preaching. Um, used to, I'd follow him around, and I'd sit. A lot of times he'd want to sit over there, and I'd, I'd come in. I'd carry his Bible, and I'd sit by him. And uh, he'd do what he always did. He'd reach in his pocket and get an toy and he'd say, here, take that. And somebody would come up that I didn't know. He'd say, Kevin, show him your driver's license. I don't know where I lost it. You remember that old set of driver's license, Amanda? She's heard him tell me to do it. You could look at my driver's license, the driver's license before I was saved. You could look at my appearance and tell I'd lived rough. He'd say, Kevin, show me your driver's license. And I had it in my wallet, and I'd take it out, and I'd show it. And he'd say, that's what the grace of God can do for you. It can change your life. That's what Paul is saying. Let me give you this and I'll be done. 1910, Mordecai Ham was preaching in Texas in revival services. In the middle of one of the evening services, a man stood up and shouted, Saved! 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 Ham stopped preaching and asked the man to explain himself. And with tears, he talked about how that he had murdered four men and spent most of his life in prison in Texas was not supposed to be released released, but because of the changing of a law, he was set free. God had saved him. Not just saved it, rescued his life. I'm talking about saved his soul. And according to the rehearsing of the story, as I read it, was most everybody was overwhelmed because of the man's jubilation that night, his testimony. Jack Schofield was leading the singing. Before he went to bed that night, all he could think about was the man standing up and shouting, Saved, saved, saved. When he woke up the next morning to get ready for work, he had the man on his mind. He left work and came back home and penned some familiar words. You'll know them. He was inspired in 1910 by that man. Jack Schofield wrote, I have found a friend who is all to me. His love is ever true. I love to tell, tell how he lifted me. And what his grace can do for you. Saved by his power divine. Saved to new life sublime. Life now is sweet and my joy is complete. For I'm saved. 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 Isn't that a blessing? Isn't that a blessing? This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am chief. I don't tell a lot about what goes on in meetings. But sometimes I do. You remember me coming home in November and I've got to quit. I told you about Scott Denny. I sat behind my buddy Sam. His family and church members. I sat on the pew behind where Brother Jay and Miss Andrew seated. And I sat behind Poplar Springs folk all week long. That came to just support the meeting. Setting two pews up over here against the wall, about where Clay and Chloe are seated, Scott Denny and his wife. Scott Scott was saved just a few months earlier, before that, prior to that meeting. He's rough. He's tough. I preached on giving all week. I dealt with storehouse tithing on Monday night. He spoke to his pastor on Tuesday. And said, I've been robbing God. I've been doing this right. But my wife and I stayed up last night and talked it out. Whatever it means, we will be involved in storehouse tithing through our local church. Scott listens to our services. He sent me a text about 530, just a word of encouragement. He said, tell everybody, charity. I said, hello. You don't know him. He wants to take a trip to Mississippi. Can you believe that? We've got five or six families who wants to drive out here from North Carolina to Mississippi just to meet you folks. I ain't going to brag on you to your face. I brag on you everywhere I go. They want to meet you, all of you. Isn't that a blessing? And if you don't get to meet Scott Denny here or you don't travel out there and run into him somewhere, you'll bump into him one of these days around the throne of God. Saved, Paul is saying. Saved, saved, saved. Let's stand.